Almighty God, gracious Father, you promise that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So, your sermon text is on the back of the Gospel reading for today, Shepherd Sunday. And uh, let's take a quick reading through the lesson before we get into the outline. Verse 22 of John 10. This is the latter part now of, the, of John 10. Um, most of the Good Shepherd sayings are earlier in John 10, but we follow a three-year lectionary series, and so now we're at the end of the chapter. Verse 22. At that time... The Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Now, this is the festival of Hanukkah. It's the rededication of the temple. This goes back to 165 B.C. when the Jews defeated the Seleucid Empire and there was a, a new outbreak of religious freedom among the Jews. They cleansed the temple it had been desecrated by the Seleucids, and they, they rededicated it. And so it's entirely appropriate now that the Messiah himself appears during this feast of rededication of the temple. After all, this Jesus is God and man in one person. He is where God and man meet in a gracious, forgiving way. That is the true temple. He is the true temple himself. And we read that it was winter, and that certainly is appropriate because Jesus is receiving a chilling reception from his opponents in Jerusalem. This is where the opposition to Jesus is centered. It's in Jerusalem. And that's where, by the way, he must die. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now this is a pillared porch that was rumored to have been built by King Solomon. Uh, it was not built by King Solomon, but his name was associated with it. And it's entirely appropriate that Jesus would be there because he is the true son of David, the ultimate son of David, that Solomon is simply a figure of. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him. They're encircling him here. And they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, they don't really want to know the truth. And that comes out and the context gives you that. They want him to condemn himself. They want him to set himself up to, or to make the claim that he's the king, that he's somehow a threat to Caesar and to Pilate and get in trouble for it. That's what they want. They want him to convict himself. And Jesus gives a very skillful reply. Jesus answered them, I told you already, in other words, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You see, what you believe and do is a result of what you are or who you are. 
verse 27. Now this is the gospel. This is the good news. And even though his hearers oppose him, they want him dead, yet he reaches out. He appeals to them in a gracious way, holding up himself as the one, the only one, who can give a life that is beyond our reach. My sheep hear my voice. You see, this is an appeal to them to become his sheep. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You notice, in John's Gospel, whatever the Father does, Jesus does as well. They share in the same works. And not only do they share in the same works, but you recall from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, this is what Moses said about God. He said, I, the Lord, am one. One. And so Jesus is one with the Father. He's one not only in function, but in being. Jesus is in union with Yahweh. And this is an appeal to them to believe. Jesus diagnoses their problem in verses 25 and 26. They've seen what he's done. They've heard his words. But it makes no difference. They are opposed to him, no matter what he does. It's not as if he hasn't done enough. It's that they will not accept whatever he does. That's the problem. Their hearts are hardened. Their minds are closed. The problem is that they cannot be his sheep. The problem is they will not be his sheep. No matter what he says or does, they will not come. The problem is not in Jesus. The problem is in them. And yet he reaches out. He makes the appeal. This is the situation with my sheep. This is what I do for my sheep. It's an appeal to them to become his sheep. But they'll have none of it. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Doesn't matter what he says or does. They're opposed. That's hardness of heart. So Roman number one in your sermon outline Eternal life, that's really what the text is about. It's about what Jesus gives to his sheep. Eternal life is the life by which God himself lives. Psalm 84, verse 2. He is the living God. He is the living God. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life is native to him, to God. Point A, natural life ends in death. You don't need me to tell you that. You don't even need scripture to tell you that. Experience teaches us that over and over again. Natural life ends in death. Point B, eternal life is life which death cannot destroy. Jesus said in John 11, 
He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. That speaks of the resurrection of the body. And he who lives and believes in me will never die, Jesus said. That speaks of the immortality of the soul. Eternal life is the life which death cannot destroy. Point C, therefore, the real enemy of eternal life is not death. The real enemy of eternal life is sin. It is sin. And I cite 1 John 5.16, where John writes these words, There is a sin that leads to death. There is a sin that leads to death. This is the sin against the Holy Spirit. It is persistent, willful refusal to believe in spite of all the evidence. It's a hardened heart, a closed mind. It's an impenitent spirit. That is the one sin that leads to death. Roman numeral two. Jesus calls us to share in what he himself is. I like what the Apostle John writes in his first letter, verse 20 of chapter 5. He writes this of Jesus. This, this one, is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. Life is native to him. It's not native to us. It's given to us. It's native to him. It's his by nature. God cannot die. God in the flesh can die and has died for our sins and risen again. But God in the absolute sense cannot die. And point A, eternal life is a share in God's own life. It's a participation in God's own life. That's what eternal life is. And it's a present possession. It's not simply a future hope. Point B, it is pure gift. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. This is not something you and I achieve. It's not like we're partners with God and we're both working this thing out. He flat out gives it or we would never have it. It is pure gift. It is given to you in baptism. It's given to you in your baptism. It is received by faith. And it is nourished by the body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper. It's nourished by the Lord's Supper. Jesus said this in John 6, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This life, which is pure gift, must be nourished and sustained in us while we're in this flesh. It must be nourished and sustained. We are weak, and we need his sustenance. So Roman numeral three, uh, this is how I want to look at eternal life. It's through this question. Do friendships last forever? Can they? This was a question I looked up on Quora, which is a, a website where you can ask questions and get other people's opinions, which often don't count for a whole lot. But, but um, you know, for us, the Word of God is authoritative, you know. 
But it's still, it pays to listen to others once in a while and to, and to discern what it is you're hearing. But uh, th- th- this is a question asked by a, a young woman, Hannah S. This is what she writes. I was friends with a girl I had grown up with from age two. Our parents were friends as well, so we were together all the time. She was literally like a sister to me, although I have also known that friendships die. I genuinely believed we would know each other as adults and be friends forever. But she was a year older than me. She started secondary school before me. She experienced everything before me, and it started to get between us. Just before I turned 17, she met this boy and started not telling me things, and I didn't get it, and everything just got confusing. I was thinking, right, we're going through a phase where we're not close, but hey, give it time. But it didn't, and we stopped speaking altogether. There was never a final, we're not speaking. It just ended. Then she began university last year, and we never see one another now. Well, I saw her the other day, and we smiled and said hi, but it was so weird. I don't miss her. I miss who she used to be. But she changed, because that's who she is. And I can't hold that against her. So I I, I don't know. Can a friendship last forever? Well, I used to think it could. But now, I've lost hope. I don't know what your experience is, but um, all too often mine has been people come and people go. They enter your life and they leave. They, they come into the church and they go out the, the, the back door. That's life. You know, people grow apart. People develop new interests. People move here or there. People die. Relationships, this side of heaven, don't seem to last. Except one. And I read again verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's hard for me to get my mind around the concept of eternal life. And so I have to think of it in terms of relationships. That helps me understand a little something about it especially the relationship that God forms with us in Jesus. That's eternal. That's forever. That begins to make sense to me in a world that, where everything else terminates. Point A, Jesus said in verse 27, I know them. I know them. Now, Several years ago, a member of our congregation, uh, Ruth Ullman, had some Sue uh, Walfing's mother, Neva's grandmother. She passed away, and the funeral was up at St. James Lutheran in Lafayette, and I assisted with the funeral. And um, I, I met a woman there 
named Virginia Butler Whitehead. And after the funeral, there's a meal and we're sitting down and I'm talking to Virginia Butler Whitehead. And she's telling me all about my family. She knows everyone in my family. She could list all my cousins out to third cousins. And she, she listed them all on a piece of paper. It was like a family tree. She just scribbled out for me. And she knew more about me than I knew about me. She knew more about me than I knew about my past. And I thought, Virginia Butler Whitehead, you're worth knowing. You're worth knowing. Well, you know, in John chapter 1, um, we're in John's Gospel today, and that's a good place to be. In John 1, Jesus calls Philip to follow him. He says, follow me. And Philip, it's kind of ironic, he turns around and runs away. <laughs> but he goes uh, to Nathaniel. And, and he goes to Nathaniel. And he says, come and meet the Messiah, Jesus from Nazareth. And you know what Nathaniel said? Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Okay. A very skeptical, kind of a put down. And so Philip says, come and see. He brings Nathanael to Jesus. And while they're coming, Jesus says to Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's nothing false. And Nathanael asked, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. I mean, like that, Nathanael was stuck to Jesus. See, he says, Rabbi, you are the king of Israel. Jesus, this is what the word know means. It means prior knowledge. I mean, I knew about you before you came into existence. I mean, that's knowledge, okay? I mean, yeah, it covers everything else since you're born, but, but even before you're born, he knew you. He knew your ancestors. He knew the stock you came from. He knows you better than you know you. Reminds me in John 4 of the woman at the well. And, and Jesus uh, asked the question. He says, well, go and, and call your husband here. And she said, well, I don't have a husband. And he said, well, you're right. He said, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And what does she do? Oh, she runs away, and she goes to her friends, and she says, come and meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. And they came, and they heard, and they believed. I, I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 139. Thou art intimately acquainted with all my ways. With all my ways. My friends, the most important person you can ever know is the one who knows everything there is to know about you. When he reveals himself to you, he's revealing you to yourself. When he declares himself to be the shepherd, he's revealing you as his sheep. When he reveals himself as the vine, he's revealing you as the branch. When we know him we begin to understand ourselves. We talked about this last week, but it's a point worth repeating. To know Jesus is not an end in itself. 
to know Jesus is to know who you are. Point B. Your continuance in eternal life depends not on your feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on you. It doesn't depend on your hold on him, but his hold on you. I like the way Paul puts it in 2 Timothy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's the kind of leader we need. That's the kind of savior we require, weak as we are. One, one phrase that resonates in my mind, it's spoken throughout the Old Testament and it's quoted in the New, where God says this to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I don't come in the front door and enter, exit the back door of your life. That's not who Jesus is. In fact, Jesus is the one person you could condemn him, as Nathaniel did, kind of in an offhanded way. Dismissed him. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You can condemn him. You can mock him. You can spit upon him and abuse him. You can even nail him to a cross. And he would still love you. And he would still forgive you. No, he, he doesn't go out the back door of your life. Sin may be the enemy of eternal life, but Jesus is the enemy of sin. He is victorious over our sin. He deals with it once and for all. And because he does, we participate in his life, which never ends. We relate to him in a way that never ends. That is the gospel. That's what we call the good news. And through it, the shepherd calls you. So I ask you, do you hear? Are you hearing? In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.